Are you ready to bring your real estate game to the next level? My name is James Prendamano. I'm the CEO and founder of Pre-Real. And over the past 25 years, I've closed over a billion dollars in transactional real estate. Each week, I'm meeting with outstanding investors, high-performing individuals, and visionaries operating in the real estate space. These are the people that are actually out there in the real estate game right now getting it done. This podcast aims at bringing anyone's game to the next level. This is the Pre-Real Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Pre-Real Podcast. We're joined today by Rich Summers. Uh, Rich is the founder and CEO of Fortune Cribs, and he has a, built a portfolio um, that's so damn impressive, in excess of $35 million. He's uh, got an awful lot to offer. We're really excited to have him on the show. Rich, thank you so much for taking time out of the busy schedule for us today. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm a big fan and I'm excited to uh, dig into this conversation today. It's a, it's an honor to be here. No, thank you very much. So, uh, Rich, people don't wake up with $35 million investment portfolios, right? And I, I know that you at one point took a hell of a leap to, to get into the game. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about uh, your life before then. Talk a little bit about the why. What was happening and how did we get to making the leap, if you will. Yeah, of course. So I, I grew up middle class. Um, my mom is an immigrant from Taiwan. And uh, my parents both know the value of uh, working hard for your money and, and, and saving your money. I have a background in sales. As I was going to college, I started selling cell phones and then later got into car sales. And that was the first time I realized that I could control to a certain extent of how much I earned. And I wanted to sell commercial real estate at a college um, and so I interviewed with CB Richard Ellis and Grubb and Ellis, a couple of commercial firms back in 2008 when I graduated. And uh, as your listeners know, the, the economy was starting to come down at that time. And they pulled both of those internship positions. And they said, hey, we love your, your hustle, but this is not the right time to get into the, uh, the industry. So I found myself um, end of 2008 working on a car lot, trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And I backed into a job as an air traffic controller. Um, controlling airplanes. And I ended up doing it for 11 years. And along the way, I remembered real estate and I re read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I said, man, I got to restructure my life. And, um, and get into this real estate game, but this time I'm going to do it on the investment side and not on the sales side. And so I did at the time what everyone uh, you know says, society says it's a little bit too risky and you shouldn't be cashing out your 401k, but I cashed out my 401k. I pulled out a home equity line of credit against my primary residence here in San Diego where I live. And I started buying some cash producing real estate. The first deal I did was 11 units in Cincinnati, a C-class uh, deal. Shortly after that, I partnered with a couple guys that I worked with uh, controlling airplanes. And those are still my partners today in, in, in one of the businesses. And uh, we JV'd and joint ventured on a 32-unit building in Indianapolis. Um, shortly after that, we launched a podcast. We learned how to raise money, started a networking event here in San Diego, and uh, took down a couple larger syndications last year, 150 units in uh, Greensboro, and then Timber Creek Apartments, which is 145 units, also in Greensboro, North Carolina, bought some short-term rentals along the way. And um, yeah, excited. This year, I uh, just recently, a couple months ago, launched a new company called Fortune Cribs, which uh, is a company to where we help clients buy short-term rentals in select markets around the country, which we feel will do good under our management. We'll help, uh, our team will design, furnish, and manage all the day-to-day 
making the the whole process hands off to the client, but they'll own 100% of the deal. And uh, my partners and I are launching a fund here in a couple months to go buy uh, more short-term rentals uh, with our investors. So that's kind of my story in a nutshell. Uh, remarkable. So I, I listened to the multifamily takeoff. That's that's Rich's podcast. Uh, he has two partners there. Definitely a, a great listen. And and now I understand the connection because mm-hmm. I believe your uh, two partners just retired now, right? They just left the, yeah. the air traffic control. Yeah, now I got they, it. They just left um, recently. I think they, they both just had their last and final shifts uh, about two weeks ago, and I couldn't be more excited for them. They're amazing guys. That that's great. So uh, there, there's got to be a big piece of the story missing here, though, right? I mean, was there um, a mentor, uh, anyone else in the family deeply entrenched in real estate? What was the inspiration outside of just deciding at that point to to take the leap that brought you to real estate? Yeah. So my older sister's husband, my brother-in-law, he's been a big influence on my life. He brokers small apartment buildings um, up in the Orange County area. And that was initially why I wanted to sell commercial real estate out of college. And um, they've bought some small apartment buildings along the way um, over the years. And I know they've done really well doing so. And so that was a part of the inspiration. The other part of the inspiration was really, I, I just wanted to do more. I, I just kind of felt like after, you know, it had been at the time almost 10 years with this air traffic job, I just kind of felt like I wanted to try something different and do a little bit more with my life and maybe construct a lifestyle to where I could start earning a lot of my income passively versus trading my time for dollars. Because I don't know if your listeners are aware, but man, in that industry, as an air traffic controller, it's one, it's high stress. Um, you're constantly like under a lot of pressure. When it gets busy, it's it's a lot, but the workload is a lot. They're short-staffed constantly. So you're always working six-day work weeks, mandatory overtime, and you might have one day off a week and it's not going to be on a weekend. It's going to be like on a Tuesday or Wednesday. You do that you know, for multiple years, it, it starts to really train you. Yeah. So uh, we, we talk about this often on, on the show, or at least we reference it. We have a book club here um, in the office. Those of you who have not uh, had the opportunity to read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, it is an absolute must read for everybody. Uh, we're 25 years into our careers. We've, we've done a number of investment deals. We run a real estate brokerage. We've been blessed with some success in our market. Uh, but boy, is that a transformative book that really helps to uh, highlight and define things that seem incredibly obvious, but until you take the time to really pull it apart in your life, uh, good, good God, did it have a, a dramatic impact on us. Yeah. No, absolutely. And and I th- I think a lot of people get into, you know, government line of work where you have a pension because with this line you have if you do 25 years, you get a pension, they'll pay you the rest of your life. And so it's kind of like that security blanket. And so most individuals that get into it, they don't even fathom uh, the idea of pivoting and, and, and leaving to go do some new venture, especially, um, you know, in your adult years. But at the end of the day, like looking back, um, you know, even cashing out the 401k, you know, people will say it's too risky. Looking back, I think my biggest takeaway is this, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of those risks are real. So put some weight on them. But on the other side of the balance scale is another risk. And it's this, I could be 80 years old one day, laying in my bed, staring at the ceiling, kicking myself, 
because I never tried it anything in life. How about that risk? Because that's a risk too, that a lot of people don't mention. Yeah. With, without question. Um, you know, there, there's a great blog folks on Rich's website also where he chronicles um, one of the ones I really enjoyed was some mistakes that, that you've made over the years and you really go through uh, detail. I believe this one was about uh, a 1968 building you had bought and some of the, the things that you, you would and would not repeat more importantly, moving forward. So um, in that context, you're, you're deciding to, to take this leap. Uh, you, you pull money out of the 401k, you, you pull a HELOC on the home. The, the biggest challenge I find for us uh, and for many people we talk to is when you're making that first investment, where do you start geographically? How did you identify where you were going to put your flag down first? How do you, how do you land on an emerging market or a market that you, you enjoy? Yeah. So with that 32 unit deal in Indianapolis, my two partners and I, we had a certain ability to buy. And so we knew our ability to buy what we could afford. And we started underwriting deals in various markets around the country. And as we were running underwriting deals, we realized that a lot more of the yield and the cash flow, which is what we were looking for because we were ultimately trying to get out of our day jobs, um, led us to the Midwest. And within the Midwest, you got a bunch of different markets, some with declining population growth, some with declining employment growth and some with growing employment growth and population growth. And so we knew that we wanted to go into a market that had high cash flow, population growth, employment growth, and a lot of other good metrics that we like to look at, such as, you know, the neighborhood, the schools, um, and that sort of thing. But uh, our research brought us to a few different markets. And so we really went deep in those markets in terms of building relationships with the brokers, et cetera. And this particular deal was brought to us off-market by a broker who it was kind of a pocket listing, if you would. He had a relationship with this seller. This seller was older. Her husband had passed away a few years back. They had owned about four or five buildings in this area, and they were starting to sell them off because they were getting a little bit older. And this particular building had all the issues, but it was in a good location. It was in a good submarket um, about 15 miles south of downtown Indianapolis called Greenwood. Um, good schools, growing population, and a lot of good retail and stuff like that near the property. It just happened to have a lot of issues, had down units, a lot of deferred maintenance. And um, we were lucky. We were able to you know, secure that thing up. We had a lot of ups and downs within the, um, the, the hold period, but we actually uh, were able to just exit out of that property about a month ago and go full cycle on our first deal. And uh, yeah, we were able to 3x the value of the property in, in about 25 months. Wow. Wow. So did you have any thoughts or concerns at that point about scale? And, and by that, I mean, uh, you buy a 35 unit building or a hundred unit building many times uh, operationally, it's similar staff, just like a hotel would be. Uh, mm -hmm. You can get up to X amount of doors and the more doors you add, the higher the profit gets because that staff can handle X amount. Uh, right. Were you guys thinking about that at that point? We weren't thinking about that too much. We were just trying to figure out a way to buy as many units as we possibly could, given our ability to buy in a, in a decent location. And as you, you close that deal, did you then buy more units in that area? 
you know what we didn't we we continue to source deals in that um the same indianapolis market but we weren't able to find any deals to pencil um and we were looking in a in a, in a quite a few different other markets but no the next one after that was the arbors which was 150 units in greensboro north carolina so uh, a common theme as we talk to more and more folks that are having amazing success in this field it's relationships, connecting with the brokers, connecting with the managers, uh, the folks that actually have boots on the ground in those areas. Uh, would you would you say that that's a, a good starting point for people? They really have to get a, a handle of who the boots are on the ground? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would always suggest starting with getting to know all the brokers in whatever market that you're trying to go deep in, because those brokers are going to be your gatekeepers to all the deals. And they're also going to have relationships with a lot of the property managers in the area. I think the other team member that's very key is, is obviously the property manager, because um, I, I think they're the most crucial part of your business plan um, outside of the, the asset management, but someone's got to integrate it, right? Yeah, without a doubt. Um, so you take this this building down. Um, you're finding opportunities to to source deals where there's a nice spread. The the market is getting more and more competitive. So mm -hmm. where where is Rich looking uh, when he's trying to source deals today? Yeah, so it's been very challenging for us to find deals to pencil in this climate. As you know, you know, cap rates have compressed, yields have come down. There's a lot of demand for multifamily. There's a lot of demand for a lot of real estate across the country for uh, for very valid reasons, of course. And then we're seeing a lot of inflation with all the money that's been printed. So for us, it's been challenging to find deals to pencil. And I think and a lot of it comes down to your assumptions. You know, when you're underwriting these deals, what are you assuming for rent growth? You know, we like to assume three percent, but yeah, we're seeing fifteen percent like nationwide rent growth, right? But you don't want to assume that, so it's hard to come to a arrive to a number that um is is going to be enough to be awarded a lot, a lot of these deals. And so, um, for us, particularly in the markets that we're sourcing deals, it's been challenging. I know other operators that we're friends with, they're getting deals done in different markets. But for us, we're going to pivot our attention this year and focus on scaling the short-term rental side of the portfolio, just because we feel like we can provide and produce a lot better cash flow and ROI for our investors going this route at this given moment. So one of the things we've been cautioning our audience and our clients and partners about over the last year, year and a half, uh, we felt inflation was was coming. It had to come, right? In spite mm -hmm. of what so many people, or the talking heads were saying, it just didn't make sense. When you're printing that amount of money, mm -hmm. this is just a byproduct of it. So with inflation, those deals that we had, uh, uh, the arena we had played in, the, the retail longer type deals, um, uh, one would argue it's it's a safe investment. You have some corporate signatures. You're locked in. The other side would argue as inflation soars, you're actually losing money on that opportunity every year because you've got fixed in increases. And almost every time, 99% of the time, your increases are not going to keep pace with what we're seeing from an inflation perspective. Uh, one solution for that is short-term rentals, right? You're able to adjust that, that price point uh, almost, you know, weekly as these units turn over, was that one of the forces that played into the equation as you launched Fortune Cribs? No, it really wasn't. Um, the how Fortune Cribs came to fruition really was 
there, I knew there was a demand for a product that produced high yield and high cash flow. But one of the two things I heard a lot with clients and, and just people out there with regarding short-term rentals is, hey, I'd love to do it, but it's just too much work and I don't, I don't want to deal with it. Right. And so I thought, man, what if we could create a turnkey product so where we source deals for clients? We actually find them lending options. We find them everything they need to do. We hold their hand through the whole process um, from start to finish. And then once they close on the property, they own 100% of it. And then our team will go design, furnish, and manage all the day-to-day, making it completely hands-off for them, including the cleaning, the maintenance, the utilities, the marketing, the whole, the, basically the A to Z. And uh, so far, there's been a huge appetite for this product. Sure. So you're essentially... Um, if I have this right, a concierge service that is, uh, you're, you're even, did you say identifying the deal as well? Yeah. We'll even source deals for clients. We just hired a, uh, a, uh, director of acquisitions actually. Um, and, and that individual along with myself are basically sourcing deals for clients. That's, that's super exciting. So I, I have some, some money I want to invest. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, uh, I, I don't have or want to be bothered with the infrastructure of getting things up and running. I can give your team a call, Rich, and say, hey, uh, I've got X amount of dollars liquid. I'm looking to, to jump into the short-term uh, rental market. You guys find the transaction and walk these people through the entire acquisition, and then you're staging it. You're, lease, you're doing the lease. You're doing the whole thing. We're doing everything. And the reason we're helping out with acquisitions is because if we're going to be doing the A to Z and we're going to be managing these properties, we want to buy the right properties in select markets in the right neighborhoods to where we know we can produce the best ROI for our investors and our clients. We don't want to buy properties to where we're going to have to continue to push on these things every single day to keep them full. We want to buy properties that are going to keep themselves full. So uh, what, what uh, areas do you focus on? What, what are the markets that, that if I want to do business with, with Rich, where can I expect to end up purchasing? Yeah. So the biggest risk to this um, investment vehicle is the change in the regulatory environment. So generally speaking, you want to target uh, markets that are um, a little bit more landlord friendly. Those types of states and areas tend to have a more relaxed stance against short-term rentals. To give you a good example, um, a lot of areas like Los Angeles, New York, are have very strict regulatory environments towards short-term rentals. And I get it. You know, there's there's some some of the reasons behind it are okay. Um, an outside investor is able to pay up a lot more than the everyday buyer that's going to be living at these properties as a primary resident. So it's driving up the median sale price of these properties. It's also taking away from the long-term uh, rental market supply because people are coming in and renting them in as, as short-term rentals versus long-term. So that's driving up rent prices. But also, um, you have you're always going to have some uh, bad operators that are irresponsible. And you know, I get it. it. Some of these families have lived in these neighborhoods for decades and generations. And um, you know, if you have a couple irresponsible operators that are hosting uh, guests that are throwing parties and creating noise for these neighborhoods, it can be a nuisance. So I totally understand all those things. Um, But on the flip side, you have areas like Arizona, areas like Indiana that actually have a completely different stance on short-term rentals. They have a pro-business and real estate stance and their sentiment is like, hey, um, we want to encourage tourism to our state because it helps stimulate our economy. So 
I, I would argue that the, and we've talked about it very candidly here going back since we, we started the show two years ago, <clears throat> regulatory risk is now at the top of every SWOT analysis, every single deal that we look at. Uh, we are so hyper-focused on that because locally, the, the regulatory risk has gone far beyond just short-term rentals. It mm-hmm. has really had a profound impact on every asset class. Um, and you're starting to see that translate, unfortunately, now where folks are trading in the, their investments and their address in cities like New York, um, and they're heading to other markets. The, the reason, Rich, people tolerated uh, a much higher regulatory barrier, if you will, or bar, was because the opportunity still was worth the pain, right? It was still worth going through those additional hoops. And if you're, I'm talking about the good operators, the bad operators, we have no patience for, right? We're not a fly by night. Mm. You guys are not fly by nights. We're not even entering that arena, but the, the good operators still were facing such challenges from a regulatory perspective. And I think, as you touched on, many times the legislation is well-intended. There are uh, the bad apples, and because of them, the, the, the powers that be are often tabling legislation that, while it's intended to, to do the right thing, in practice, it often does not. In, in fact, it has the opposite effect. It's caused companies like ours to completely leave entire market segments because of the regulatory risk. And with that, a vacuum's created and in comes the bad actors and it just doubles down and compounds that. Uh, so from a regulatory perspective, I think uh, we're all feeling that in every uh, class, if you will, asset class where the regulatory risk is, has created challenges and we're opting for those friendlier markets where there isn't quite that bar um, so you're you're taking these uh, investors and you're plugging them into these deals. Uh, what can I expect uh, when I when I want to pursue a property? Is it a thirty percent or forty percent down? What what type of financing options are they? Can we walk through almost like a, a sample deal so the audience understands if they wanted to acquire property like this? What are the expectations? Yeah. So typically you can expect to put down anywhere from 10 to 20% um, on a short-term rental. Um, the second home loan, which is a Fannie Freddie uh, conforming residential loan product, um, is actually just 10% down, um, but they have a limit of 700K. Um, and so in a lot of high cash flow markets, we can buy a brand new construction four bedroom for less than you know 700K, 10% down. The design and furnish cost for a typical four bedroom is going to be about $40,000, maybe 45K. So with the 10% down and the design furnish, you're going to be all in for maybe 100K or less. And most of the deals that we're doing with clients um, are penciling out to anywhere from 20 to 30% cash on cash returns. And that's after all expenses, after our management fee and after debt service. So 20 to 30% cash on cash return over what period of time? Um, the, over an annual period. So 20 to 30% per year. Per year? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can essentially get your money back in, in four years or less just from the cash flow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and this is not even taking into consideration the long-term appreciation, the loan pay down, and the tax benefits. 
Wow. And and because this is an investment property, there's some other tax advantages folks may be able to take advantage of as well there. Um, mm-hmm. I would assume that this is 1031 exchange eligible. Yeah, 1031 exchange eligible. Um, and then if our clients opt to it, opt for it, we will always suggest let's do a cost seg study so we can uh, facilitate the whole cost seg- uh, segregation study as well to further increase the uh, tax benefits and the bonus depreciation. Could you sp- speak for a few minutes about cost segregation and what that is? Yeah, of course. So cost segregation is a study that you can have performed on any sort of investment property, any type of asset class. And basically, it's just uh, compiled of, you know, some engineers will go in and and some CPAs and they'll come up with a report that basically uh, spruces up, if you would, for a lack of better terms, a lot of the major components that are on a replacement schedule within the property, such as the cabinets, the flooring, the HVACs, the roofing, all those components within the property, even the furniture. And um, they will give you a report that you can then give to your CPA. um, And your CPA will be allowed to use that to really juice your bonus depreciation and your write-offs if you would. Um, Generally speaking, about 25% of your all-in cost um, will be a bonus depreciation. So if you buy a million dollar project, about $250,000, you'll be able to bonus there wow. or depreciate. And, yeah. and, and are you targeting assets? Uh, you know, do they have to be on a lake or do they have to have those types of amenities or what does it typically look like? Yeah. So we're looking at properties in all different markets around the country. Um, we do like vacation towns because the regulatory environment there seems to be a little bit more relaxed um, in a lot of these vacation areas lake towns, mountain towns, ski towns, et cetera. Um, vacation rentals have been around for you know decades and decades, far before Airbnb or Verbo became popular. And so we like those areas, but we also like some of the other metros that um, are bigger cities, but have relaxed um, regulations. So a few markets that come to mind, Scottsdale, Arizona is a very, very good short-term rental market. They get 12 million visitors a year. There's um, spring training baseball out there. They got the four major sports. They got professional golf. And um, that's a very, very, um, from a regulatory standpoint, it's a very relaxed market to go into. Um, We like areas like Indianapolis, Tampa, um, and some of those areas. So the... uh, Is there a a place in the program, uh, Rich, if I have... Uh, a vacation home that is, is in, a, in a location that your company services, uh, is there an opportunity for us to, to contact your team and say, hey, I, I have this house on Lake Wallenpawpack and, uh, you know, we, we never get up there, you know, I'm always working, the usual story. Is there an opportunity for you to take existing assets or is it only assets that go through the acquisition process with you? We will uh, 100% take on an existing asset if the deal makes sense for us. So for us, we really want to stick to new construction or fully renovated properties. Um, And that doesn't mean it needs to be a high price point, but it could be a lower price point, but we just want to put out a good quality product out there in the marketplace. And we always strive to be in the top 90th percentile of all short-term rental listings in whatever given market we go into. So to answer your question, yes, we'll look at existing properties for clients. If the deal makes sense, we'll totally manage it for them. And then also another arm of the business is the master lease. So if we have a exist a client with an existing property and they don't want to invest in designing and furnishing, 
we can actually do a long-term lease. We can do a two to three year lease agreement. We'll actually pay them, you know, 10 to 15% above market rate. We'll invest in their, uh, their property in terms of the design and furnish in exchange for the right to uh, sublease it as a short-term rental. Wow. Um, so in the program is, or do you find these things to typically be seasonal? Are you never going to go and, and use the house as the owner uh, or are there blockout periods or how does that work? Yeah. Our owners can uh, use the their properties whenever they want. Um, they, all they have to do is just let, them, let us know what dates they want to block out. We'll block out the schedule for them. They can go visit the property at any time, which is kind of cool because not only do you get to vacation at your own place, but also if you ever want to get eyes on your property, it's easy to do so versus having a long-term in there. But what we're telling clients and what our clients are discovering now is the cash flow is so good that the opportunity cost of booking your own place is more expensive than what they're willing to give up. You're better off just taking the cash flow and using that money to go vacation wherever you want. <laughs> so what does occupancy look like? What, what can we expect? How, how often are you filling, filling these, these units up? Yeah. So um, we we make our money when we operate. Um, there's a lot of third-party management companies out there, but I don't think there's anyone doing it exactly to how we're doing it. Um, but market occupancy can fluctuate anywhere from 45 to 60%, depending on market. But we're, we always strive to operate at 90% or greater. And, and that's really what we do with all of our assets. We manage these properties as if they're our own. Um, my short-term rentals that I own um, are actually also managed by Fortune Cribs. And so we've implemented a lot of the same strategies to keep the, the occupancy 90% and up for all of our units. So once you've completed the staging and, and everything is ready to roll, mm -hmm. um, do I have to then get involved with collecting money from people and security or does it go through you and you pay out the distribution? How does that, that all work? Yeah. So we handle everything. So we handle all the reservations, the cleaning, the management, the turns, all the guest communications. Uh, we can even handle the utilities on behalf of our owners. All the revenue comes into our account and then we pay all the expenses out of our account. And then at the end of each month, we send our owners a, um, a statement which will have like a profit and loss for the month. And then it will also, they'll also receive a uh, ACH payment. So I don't even have to be involved in the, the collection, security. No, none of that you don't stuff. have to do anything. It's all taken care of, man. The A to Z. Wow. Um, okay. So, and I'm sorry for all the questions, but as I'm thinking about this, like I, right now I have a small exchange. We have, I don't know, 450 or 500 uh, in an exchange and, you know, being in the business, it, it's, it's funny. It, it, you find and source deals for clients all day long, but when it's, when it's yours, it seems like mm -hmm. you never have the, the time to, to find the right spot. So I right. would be able to come to you with this exchange. You guys would place the money. Uh, we grip it and rip it. What are, what are some of the, the, the shortcomings? Do you find that there's issues with the parties with damage in the house? What are some of the, the cons to, to the operation? Yeah. So you can eliminate about 99% 
of bad guests by qualifying and only hosting the right guests. So uh, a lot of this stuff is eliminated on the front end. So we tend to only host guests that have positive reviews from other hosts. Um, we tend to get, uh, host guests that um, have positive track records. If there's anything fishy, like let's say like a, a good red flag is this. So if someone has no reviews and they're trying to book a short-term rental on a weekend and they're they also live in the same market where the short-term rental is. That's a that's a big red flag, right? Um, and so we eliminate a lot of that stuff on the front end. That said, there's always going to be some things that are missed. Um, and so let's say in the event that there is um, a noise issue, we install noise sensors inside and outside of all of our properties. And we actually have a, um, a decibel level that we set for each one. So if the noise ever goes above a certain decibel level, the guest automatically gets a message. Um, and then in terms of like, if there's ever a damage or like missing item, uh, this rarely, rarely happens. I would say it happens like less than 1% of the time. Um, it's usually something that we can um, come to an agreement with the guests. They'll just pay us for it. And it's just completely taken care of at that level. If not, we can escalate it with Airbnb. Um, they have a program to where they'll actually uh, take care of you up to X amount. And then if it's not taken care of at that point, then we can, your insurance, a short-term rental insurance would kick in. And then after that, you would have liability insurance if you have an umbrella and that sort of thing. But we've never, it's rarely gone to Airbnb. And then it's, we've never had to escalate it past that point. It's a hell of a program here. You know, you, you make this transition and, and in the multifamily space, you're enjoying uh, significant success. Uh, Rich, what, what's the reason for making this uh, taking this step and launching another company. What's the why for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it all goes back to what we mentioned earlier. Um, it, it's been very challenging to find multifamily deals to pencil. And um, like I mentioned earlier, along the way, uh, I backed into some short-term rentals and I'm like, man, even through the pandemic, I'm looking at these properties and they're just completely booked. And these things are cash flowing like crazy. And so I'm like, man, why are we forcing multifamily right now? We'll go back to it down the road when, when the opportunity might be better. But for right now, I'm like, why aren't we scaling the short-term rental side of the portfolio? And so with that, we're like, man, let's launch a fund this year and let's go buy some more short-term rentals with our investors. And I, it got me thinking, I'm like, man, there's not a turnkey service that actually does acquisition, design, and management in the short-term rental space. And I thought, there's got to be a huge demand for it. Let's put some feelers out there and see. We did that and the the demand has been tremendous thus far. And so I thought, man, we better start building out the infrastructure. And so I really focused on building out the team, creating the right systems. And uh, now we have the right team in place and we're ready to start scaling this thing. So um, there's a, a lot of economic factors now that are driving these things as we touched on earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, where do you see the market in in two years from now, three years from now, both the multifamily and the short term. Yeah, we could talk about real estate market and where we are for for hours. Um, yeah, I talk about this all the time. So there's two main drivers right now. I'm very bullish on the next three years, and I'll tell you why. One, 
Forty percent or more of the world of the of our economy's currency has been printed in the last eighteen to twenty four months. All that money needs to find yield, and they're still printing money as we speak. Number two, and I think this might be the biggest driver, is the supply and demand metrics across of America right now. The baby boomers are living longer. They're not moving out of their homes as they're not going into retirement homes as soon as they used to. They're not selling their homes, and then you got this millennial demographic, which are. Starting families and buying their first homes for the first time, and so now that's creating a, a big tick up in demand. And then you have this demographic behind us, the as what is it, the the Gen Z. They're even bigger than the millennials, and they're looking to move out of their parents' house for the first time. They're looking to rent apartments. And so whether it's single family, whether it's apartment units, whatever it is, there's just been a huge shortage. I mean, from 2008 to 2011, they didn't build much supply. And then 2020, there was a period during, you know, for nine months during the pandemic where they weren't building new supply. And so there's just a lot of pent up demand. And the reason I say the next three years look safe to me is because I think it's going to take a minimum of three years for them to build enough supply to meet the demand. And yes, there's some other factors that are going on right now with all the stuff in Ukraine and Russia. But let's be honest, if that escalates to something more than what it is today, um, the government is just going to, they're going to continue to lower interest rates and they're going to continue to print more money, which is going to bode well in the long term for real estate investors. Yeah, I, I think, um, and it's not because I'm, I'm in the business and I love the business, but I, I think in, in times of uncertainty, there is no better place to put your cash than into real estate. It, it, mm-hmm. it still just proves time and time again to be um, the safest uh, long-term option available. There, there's a lot of things that come and go, and, and certainly there's diversification. And I'm, I'm a fan of, of taking risk and, and trying different things. But man, it's hard to beat good old-fashioned real estate at the end of the day. No, it, it really is. And I said this about a month ago before they started raising rates, but it was a, there was a lot of talk about the inflation. Is the Fed going to start raising rates? And I said this a month ago when rates were still relatively low. I said, two years from now, rates will be lower than they are today. And yes, they've gone up since, but I think they're going to be lower two years from now. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of, of things at play, geopolitical election cycles, yeah. right? There's a lot of things to keep an eye on. So look, none of us have crystal balls, but we all give it our our best shot to try and and put ourselves and our clients in the best position. Uh, Rich, where is the the best place for folks to find you? Yeah. So you can find me on social media, Instagram. My handle is at rich underscore summers. That's S O M E R S. If you want to learn more about fortune cribs, you could check us out fortunecribs.com. And uh, if you want to check out our podcast, it's the multifamily takeoff. And uh, if you want to learn more about the fund um, that we're going to be launching, that's pack three capital.com. As always, everybody out there, please stay safe. Rich, thanks so much for the time today. Of course. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, Our pleasure. 